This evening we want to consider God's Word from 1 Corinthians 11. We'll begin our reading in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. And we're going to read God's Word this evening under the heading of Keeping the Supper Holy. Keeping the Supper Holy from 1 Corinthians 11. And then afterwards, we'll read together the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions concerning the Lord's Supper, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give direction. When I come. Here ends the reading of God's Word. May He bless it this evening to our hearts. And then we'll turn also in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 30. Lord's Day 30, which can be found on page 234 of your forms and prayer in the pews in front of you. And we'll give our attention first to question 80. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass to which we respond together? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with His true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father where He wants us to worship Him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priest. 
It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Question 82. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and His apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. My most dear friends, this evening we come to our fourth and final sermon on the nature of the Lord's Supper. By way of review, we learned in Lord's Day 28 that communion is a sign and seal of our feasting on the body and the blood of our resurrected Savior. In Lord's Day 29, we learned that Christ is really and truly present in the bread and wine and that His Holy Spirit comes to us and He lifts us up to heaven so that we spiritually feast upon Jesus' broken body and blood. In question 80, we learned that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the full pardon of our sins in Christ's one sacrifice. All of this should lead us to one profound conclusion. The Lord's Supper is holy. When God came to Moses, He said to him, Take off your shoes, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The Lord's Supper is for us. Holy ground. Take off your shoes, metaphorically speaking, when you receive the Lord's Supper. This is the closest, this is the realest instance, experience, of God on earth. Thomas Watson said, the word is a trumpet, but the supper is a glass where we really see Jesus. It needs to be set apart. It is so holy. But as we turn to 1 Corinthians this evening, chapters 11 through 14, Paul is addressing the worship of the church. And he gives us a fascinating account of communion, the service of the table, in the ancient church. 
And from Paul's account, it's clear that one of the main things that the Corinthian church's worship was centered upon was the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, if the communion table is to, be, is to be so holy, if it's to be so set apart and different, we should be shocked when we read how it was celebrated in Corinth. The way that they were practicing communion made it virtually indistinguishable from the pagan worship of that ancient day. You see, in the ancient world, common feasts were relatively frequent in the temples of the goddesses and gods. There were also things such as guild halls where they would have these common feasts. And for the Corinthians, the worship of God and the communion service seemed to manifest that behavior rather than a behavior, behavior fitting of Christian worship. And so he addresses in our Scripture passage this evening why the supper should occupy a prominent place. But he teaches them that the supper must be kept holy. But I want to present the question to you this evening. How do we keep the supper holy? When I was a young boy growing up in the Free Methodist Church of Canada, it was a fairly informal church, Many men kept the supper holy by wearing a jacket, a suit jacket, on Communion Sunday. Is that keeping the supper holy? Do we keep the supper holy by crying when we're given the elements? Do we keep the supper holy by intensely examining ourselves in the week prior to Communion to such a point that we feel that we are worthless? and not worthy of taking communion. All of these have been suggested as means of preparation. But notice what the Apostle Paul says. We keep the supper holy when we do self-examination. That we need to look into ourselves and recognize that we are sinners. But do not come to the table with hard hearts and come with a broken heart. Recognizing our sins, but then looking to Jesus. I love the way the catechism puts it in question 81. Who should come to the table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned. I think it hits the nail on the head this evening. The way that we keep the supper holy, here's our theme for our time together this evening. We keep the supper holy by recognizing our sins and trusting in Christ. We keep the supper holy by recognizing our sins and trusting in Christ. I want to show you this in three points. The Lord's Supper is a divine command. The Lord's Supper is a humbling confession. And the Lord's Supper is a solemn warning. It's a divine command. It's a humbling confession. And it's a solemn warning. Look with me first that the Lord's Supper is a divine command. The problem that the, the Apostle Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 11 is that they were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a far from edifying or dignified way. 
Look at that first verse. But in the following instruction on the Lord's Supper, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is abrupt. He's emphatic. The Lord's Supper was being so badly abused in Corinth that it was doing to the congregation more harm than good. Look at verses 18 to 22. Rife with issues. When they approached the supper, they were not unified as a congregation. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Corinth was a divided church. Remember in chapter 1, there were some who were dividing the congregation over their favorite preachers. One says, I follow Peter. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Jesus. Here we see a new division. But it's not a division along theological lines. It's not a division along lines of who's a good preacher or who's not. This is a division of culture. Maybe even more tragic than something else. You see, in the first century Mediterranean world, different ethnic and social groups would never eat together. Just like today, if someone has you over for a meal and you share that meal together, you share fellowship with one another, your kids, they start fighting and crying and then you reconcile them, by the end of that hour together, or two, you've become friends. You've begun to identify with one another And so much so, it indicates a bond, a fellowship has been formed. And it was the same in the ancient church. We eat with people who we want to identify with. And so, the rich were never seen eating with the poor. I don't want to identify with the poor. The Jews were never seen eating with the Gentiles because they didn't want to identify with the Gentiles. Remember Peter in Acts 11 begins to no longer eat with Gentiles. And he gets in trouble for this. They have to call the Jerusalem council. Paul says, we cannot be divided when we come to the communion table. As a congregation, we need to be unified when we come to the table. Flip one chapter back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, and look how explicit this is. Paul says, There is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. One, one, one. It's speaking of union together. But this union is not present in Corinth. They want fellowship with God, but they don't want fellowship with each other. Communion with the Almighty, but not communion with you, you, and you. I love God, but I can't love that guy. Have you seen him? This is the attitude here. And I think if we're honest this evening, we know what this is like. 
Have you ever been on your way to church and somebody makes a snarky comment to you? Are you able to focus on the sermon? Have you ever been preparing to come to the communion table and somebody just really ticks you off? How are you able to focus on the sacrament? Here is Paul's resounding point. If we don't have communion with God, or excuse me, if we don't have communion with each other, we can't have communion with God. It begins first here. That's why Christ says, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother before you seek to be reconciled with me. That's the first problem. The second problem is that we, it's evident from this passage that in the ancient church, at least in Corinth anyways, the Lord's Supper was participated in along with an actual meal. And so as I mentioned earlier, pagan temples and things which we call guild halls would have had communal meals. And in the, at these communal meals, you would bring your excess food, the rich predominantly, and they would share it with people with whom they had fellowship with. And in verse 21, we see that they have made this common meal to be more like pagan worship than Christian worship. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. They brought their own food, and they began to consume it. But it didn't even equal the level of pagan worship. Because in the pagan temples, they would share. They would give to the rich and to the poor. You would come there to be fed. But look what Paul says. In Christian worship, one is going hungry. And another is getting drunk. They're not sharing with the poor. And so the problem that Paul is addressing here is that people are not sharing their food during this communal meal. Instead of having communion with Christ as one body, they were acting selfishly. They were causing division in the church. Eating and drinking without regard for why God gave the supper. Do you see the problems here? We don't have communion with each other. And so we can't have communion with God. These are major issues. And notice what the Apostle Paul does. He goes back to the basics. He reminds them of when the Lord instituted the supper. Now I want to give a word of application here. Is it not important that when Jesus gave the supper, look at verse 23, it was on the night when He was betrayed. If the Lord of glory is willing to have table fellowship, to have communion with the very one who would later betray and condemn Him, Judas, if he's willing to sit with him and share the Passover meal, can we not also be willing to have fellowship with people who offend us? People who hurt us? Who do us wrong? 
Paul reminds us that when Christ gave the communion supper, he gave it sacrificially, selfishly, willing to be reconciled with all offending parties who come to him for reconciliation, us included. He brings them back to that first Lord's Supper in order to point them to what it really points to. They need to go back to the basics. The Lord's Supper is not a table that we can gouge ourselves on and, like Thanksgiving, loosen a notch on the belt. That's not what it's for. It's not about filling your bodies. The Lord's Supper is about filling your soul. Notice the origin. Paul says, I received from the Lord. This is actually a technical term used often in this day and age referring to receiving a story from somebody else and then you passing it on to someone else. Elsewhere, Paul says, I have received direct revelations from the Lord. Paul is saying, that he received the Lord's Supper liturgy from none other than Jesus Christ Himself. What this means is that the Supper belongs to Jesus. He is the gracious host. And so He sets the terms on how it's to be celebrated. Just like how you don't come to my house and open my pantry and fix yourself a meal... So we don't go to Jesus' table and open His pantry and fix ourselves a meal. He is the gracious host, a kingly host, who welcomes you to a meal He has prepared. This is exactly what Christ did 25 years prior. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time this evening in our ser series through the Lord's Supper, uh, I'll have you know that we've spoken at length about the sacramental language. What does it mean that Jesus says, this is my body? What well, we spoke about last week, it's sacramental language. It's pointing to the spiritual reality, but it doesn't actually change to his body. Just like how Jesus is called the rock in 1 Corinthians. He's not actually a rock. Just like how he's called the manna, he's not actually manna. When he says, this is my body, he's pointing us to a spiritual reality. What I want you to see this evening for those of you who have been with us through these four sermons, what's vitally important is who is it for? He says, this is my body. Look at it. It says, for us. The essence of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus gave Himself up for us. On the cross. And He gives Himself to us in the sacrament. Here's Paul's simple point, which can actually be very easy to miss in this passage. The simple point is that the Lord's Supper is about Christ. The Lord's Supper is focused on Christ. 
It's not about what you get out of it. It's not about who else is here and who else is taking it or whose side I'm on or what he said and she said. It's about the fact that Jesus died for me. It's as if Paul is saying, Corinthians, focus on him. Focus on his love. Focus on his cross. Focus on his promises. That's what's signified to you in the sacrament. Doesn't our catechism say that explicitly? In all of the mess, in all of the confusion, in all of the disagreements about the Lord's Supper, look what it says the Supper is about. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself accomplished on the cross once and for all. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. That's why Christ uses this language. Do this. Do this. Do this. We need to keep being reminded of the Gospel. The Lord Jesus commands us to remember, to call to mind His death, but to remember what His death has done for us. He grafts us into Christ. The Holy Spirit, He says, grafts us into Christ, who with His true body is now in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, where He wants us to worship Him. A word of application here this evening. We come to a maybe perplexing verse when it says, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What does that word must mean? There must be factions? There must be church splits and division and anger? Paul is reminding us here that God is sovereign in His church. And even when there's disagreements, and even when there is division, God is the one who is in control of His church. And this should give us hope, without digging into it too much this evening, that even in the church's sorrow, even though we are militant and not triumphant yet, God is still the Lord over the church. He was the Lord of the Corinthian church. He is the Lord of Trinity United Reformed Church. And He can even work through division such as that. So the Lord's Supper is a divine command. But it's also a humbling confession. If the Lord's Supper is all about Christ, if it's all about His sacrifice, His gospel promise, His love, the question might be, do we bring anything to the table? The the Corinthians were accustomed to bringing meat and fruits and wine. Paul, are you saying that we shouldn't bring anything? No, that's not what Paul's saying at all. There's something vitally important that you have to bring. We need to bring to the table broken and contrite hearts. What God requires of all people who would come to His table is a humble confession.
Now, I admit that verse 27 has really tripped people up over the years, saying that if we need to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord uh, in a worthy manner, and if we do it in an unworthy way, we are guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to be worthy of coming to the table? Well, let's start with what Paul's not saying this evening. I do not believe that Paul is saying that our worthiness is based on our sanctification. See, some have taught that in order to be worthy of the table is that we need to have victory over sin in our lives. That we need to have progressed beyond a certain point to be able to come to the table. Say, for instance, if you struggle with a certain sin, and the Sunday before his pastor reads that form that says, prepare your hearts, you better not commit that sin this week. And if you do, you shouldn't come. That's what some people have said. But let's get real this evening. If this were the case, would any of us be worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? I'm serious. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, do we? We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We struggle. Sometimes even on Sunday morning, we struggle with anger as we put our kids in the car. We struggle with lust that Sunday morning, covetousness, Sabbath-breaking, idolatry. To be worthy of the table, if it's based on me, I'll never be worthy. If it's based on our progress in the Christian life, we'll never get there. So it can't be based on your sanctification. Here's what I think Paul is saying. To be worthy of the table is to know that you are not worthy. To be worthy of the table is to know that you are not worthy. Worthy participants of communion with Christ are the people who recognize I'm a sinner are the people who know I'm broken. Are the people who say, I need help. I need Jesus. The fact of the matter is, we are all unworthy. Even the person who breaks the bread and administers it is unworthy. The elders who distribute it are unworthy but Christ makes us worthy. When we embrace the gospel, the word of pardon, and we trust in Jesus Christ. Who should come, question 81, to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned. Congregation, never forget that the Lord's Supper is for those who are weak in faith. It is for those who struggle with their sins, but who nonetheless, nevertheless, look to Jesus for pardon.
And so Charles Hodge puts it this way. There's not two elements to communion. He says there's three. Three elements to communion. Bread, wine, and examination. That we don't come with indifference. We don't come with contempt towards the sacrament. But as John Calvin says, we examine ourselves to see if we have repentance and faith. Self-examination is not intended to convey the impression that only those who have attained perfection can receive the Lord's Supper. But examination is an inward look at oneself to see if I need Jesus. And if I need Him, I come to Him. Those who desire, the Catechism says, more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead better life. What does God ask of you to bring to the table? Nothing but a humble confession. A confession that you are helpless and unworthy, but by partaking of the elements, we confess that our sin is so great, our iniquity so overwhelming, that I need the blood of the Son of God to wash me of my sins. Word of application. Notice with me this evening that Paul commends self-examination, but he doesn't commend the examination of other people. We are to examine ourselves, not one another. Now the church may at times, we'll learn in question or Lord's Day 31, the church may at times say that we have examined a member and have determined that they have not confessed sins And so they are barred from the table. But for the congregant, for the person receiving the sacrament, we are not to look around and see who is and who isn't taking. Or to examine someone else and say, I don't think they've confessed their sins. That's not for our eyes. Self-examination is looking into our own hearts and then looking to Christ. Now there have been some in our Reformed tradition who have said, that the more they look into themselves, the more they feel unworthy. Even to the point of worthlessness. But to be unworthy is not to be worthless. Remember that the sacrament is focused upon Christ, not upon you. The sacrament is a testimony that Jesus loved you so much He'd be willing to die for you. To wash away your sins. Unworthy as you are, you may not be worthy, but you are not worthless. You are valuable to Jesus Christ. But it's also a warning, isn't it? There is a warning in the supper that should give us all pause this evening. Paul says, unless we examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table, we risk coming under God's judgment and even dying, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. Now you have my attention, Paul. We need to consider these words with great care because we are great sinners. But who should heed this warning? 
See, the warning is not intended to scare off true believers. It's intended to scare off those who don't have faith. Paul is teaching us that without faith, if we come to the table without faith, we are guilty concerning the blood of the Lord. And the catechism actually defines us for us that as those who are hypocrites and who are unrepentant. People who hear the condemning power of the law, who hear the gospel promise and its forgiving power, and reject it. Those people should stay away. When people who don't embrace Christ come to the table, they don't receive blessing. They don't receive Christ. Paul says those kind of people actually receive judgment. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Does this mean if somebody who is a hypocrite comes to the Lord's table and takes the supper that they're going to be struck down with a bolt of lightning? I don't think so. But he is saying that people indeed do come under Christ's judgment. They will be condemned for taking the supper without faith. I don't think this means that God won't strike someone down. Maybe not with a bolt of lightning. But once I had a professor who said there was a young man who was excommunicated from the church and he was, this professor was doing the communion liturgy. He held up the bread and the young man walked right into the church building and took the bread right out of his hands and ate it. Now the elders didn't tackle him and wrestle it out of his hands. They said judgment belongs to the Lord. And within a week or so, this young man in good health had catastrophic heart failure and died. Is it possible that God judged him for his sin of not discerning the body and blood of the Lord? For coming to the table without faith? I think the answer is yes. We call this fencing the table, which is a practice that only professing members of Bible-believing churches in good standing can come and receive communion. At our church, not just anyone can come and take communion. And this is why. Because only those with faith can come to the table. That's what question 82 is about. Who should be admitted to the Lord's Supper? Those who are ungodly? Those who are not professing Christians? The answer is no. And the church is bound to keep these people from them for their own protection. Do we need to fear? In Christ, there is no condemnation. Jesus has paid the debt of sins. Even when hypocrites and the unrepentant, look what it says, bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Do we need to be afraid of this? I don't think so. And I want you to look with me at these last few verses from the Apostle Paul. He says, For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body and blood, eats and drinks judgment on himself, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we are judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But listen to this, verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Believers in Jesus never need to fear. Even when God's wrath and judgment and rebuke are resting upon us. Because God only brings it, says Paul. He only brings discipline for your salvation. We only fence the table for someone's salvation. We only practice church discipline, Lord's Day 31, for their salvation. God only disciplines those whom He loves. And the reason why the Catechism says sometimes God's wrath rests upon the congregation is not for our judgment. But it's so that He can lead us to heaven. Who should heed this warning then? This solemn warning. Those without faith who are refusing to trust in Christ. Stay away. But those who examine themselves, look in their hearts, and see their sins and their need for Jesus should heed Christ's command. Come. Those who are washed, sanctified, and justified in the death of resurrection don't fear God's judgment. Christ already bore the judgment for you. Yes, we are unworthy. But we are trusting in the worthiness of Christ. Through this holy sacrament, God promises to show us His love in the cross. Would you pray with me this evening? Father, we thank You that You have told us to come to this table. That in Christ You have drawn us to it. And even though there is great fear and trepidation because we are great sinners in coming, Lord, we thank You that we do not need to fear judgment because Christ has borne it all. And that even when somebody does partake of the supper in an unworthy manner, and there is rebuke, Lord, we need not fear, for You do all things for our good and for the good of our salvation. There is no condemnation for those who trust in Christ Jesus the Lord. And Father, we pray that You would call us to Yourself in this sacrament, and that through it You might bless us in knowing Christ more and making Him known to the world. Unto this end we pray in Christ's name. Amen.